It was many years ago, perhaps sometime in 1980. I remember this conversation I had with Nick Adams, uh, my first boss in Guyana, where we were talking about somebody, we were talking actually about the an obituary of someone. And we said, well, uh, what would be a good obituary for a person? And I remember Nick telling me, that if it can be said about somebody that he was a man, that was the best obituary. Obviously, for those who are uh, not familiar with the terminology, he was a man has nothing to do with gender. It talks about the, the nobility, the compassion, the greatness of a human being. You probably wouldn't say... He was a man about a woman, obviously, but that's what is meant here. It's not a sexist or a gender-specific term. This story today is about the man called James Nicholas Adams. And I'm saying this about him, for he was a man. I started my corporate career in Guyana with the Guyana Mining Enterprise in Kokwani on the, on the Burbis River, Rio Burbis. Kokwani was a small mining town hanging on the bank of the Burbis River, trying not to get pushed into its deep and dark waters by an aggressively advancing forest. Living in the middle of the Amazonian rainforest with no family and only a scarlet macaw and sundry chickens and turkeys and a series of wild animals as pets may not be the normal youngster's dream job, but it was mine. I lived on Staff Hill in a small bungalow with three bedrooms, a living dining room, a kitchen, and a veranda on two sides. Facing the bungalow was an orange orchard, which ended in the brooding mass of the wall of the rainforest. Sometimes I would sling up my hammock outside my house and lie down in it and spend a lazy afternoon and go to sleep. Behind and surrounding the bungalow was a large open field, ending once again in the wall of the rainforest. Living in the middle of the rainforest meant just that. You had the forest surrounding you. I would sit on my veranda in the evenings after the sun had gone down and I had had my dinner. In the days and places without TV or mobile phones, you had time to relax, watch the world go by, and simply be in sync with your surroundings. The forest is not a silent place. Forests breathe and speak and are visibly and audibly alive. Even if you don't know their language, and it differs from place to place, you can still hear them. I could hear macaws talking to each other as they head home. They pair for life and have great conversations. Lesson, conversation is essential to a good marriage. Then there are the smells, the smell of the first rain after dry season, the smell of the markings on trees of territorial creatures which are meant to warn away potential threats, the smell of vegetation growing or decomposing. While you sit quietly in a forest and let it talk to you, it does, gently and gradually. Naturally, it takes a little while because first our ears must stop buzzing with the residue of our own nausea, raucous sounds of so-called civilization. 
They try to drown out everything that the forest is trying to tell you. But if you are patient and give it some time, then gradually the buzzing fades away and you start to hear the breeze rustling in the, le- rustling in the leaves. You hear water dropping from the top levels onto the canopy below. You hear the occasional ripe fruit or dry branch fall to the floor to become either food or manure. You learn to tell the difference between a sound made by a living creature, which may be potentially dangerous or useful, and the sound of something that's not a living creature. Trees rubbing against each other, for example, or branches which have partially broken and then they knock against another branch in the breeze. The forest speaks to you in the voices of the hollow monkeys, announcing that the dawn has broken and in the evening that the night has fallen and they are signing off for the day. Toucans, parakeets and macaws talking to each other as they fly, feed and roast. It speaks to you in the rustle of the oncoming deluge, which you can hear advancing towards you, not threatening, but announcing its progress so that you can take shelter. The wind rustling the treetops sometimes sounds like the waves of the ocean. You will hear all this and more will happen if you give it some time, are observant and are willing to learn. I was thrilled to be there. There was nowhere else that I would rather be. As I mentioned, my first boss, Mr. James Nicholas Adams, we used to call him Nick Adams, was the administrative manager of Kokwani and I was his assistant manager. Nick was my manager, but even more, he was my mentor and guide. Although he was technically in charge of the whole operation, he let me run it the way I wanted, and that was a tremendous learning opportunity for me. Nick had a unique way of teaching by delegating responsibility and then periodically calling me to do a participative analysis of my own performance. He would then reinforce the strengths and achievements and encourage me to draw lessons from my mistakes. I remember my very first appraisal in 1980. Nick gave me the form and told me to fill it in myself. I was shocked because I thought appraising was something that something that the boss did of your work. But Nick said, you know what you did better than I do, so write it up. I returned with what I thought was my achievements and then Nick and I had a long chat about them. Thanks to my Indian cultural upbringing, Nick ended up adding several things that I had left out, feeling that they didn't really count. I still have that form with Nick's signature on it, many decades later. In Kokwani, I was the youngest member of the management team, sometimes by decades. As the assistant administrative manager, it was my responsibility to look after the logistics in the entire mining town. This was part of the responsibility. There were department heads over whom I had no formal authority, but whose cooperation I needed to get anything done. Some were twice my age, and Guyanese, and members of the PNC, People's National Congress, the ruling party in Guyana, while I was a young foreigner. I learned very practically that the best way to make progress was to develop a relationship based on sincerity, as that would be the only thing that you could count on, especially in hard times. I remember how Nick used to put it. He'd say, a relationship is like a bank account. You only have in it what you put in it. And when you need to draw on it, you only have as much as you put in. That is one of the lessons I learned in my life and which has stayed with me all these years.
and that lesson I owe to Nick. Another was in hospitality and consideration. The first time it happened, I was astonished, and then it became a regular feature. One weekend, Nick called me and asked me to go over to his place. When I walked over, I saw that he had a pen full of live chickens, about ten or twelve, and a knife. He said to me, "Yawar," that's how he used to call me, "Yawar." Uh, can you please slaughter these in your way? I will put them in the freezer so that we can make sure we can we are sure to give you these when you come over to our place. Nick and his lovely wife Kathleen knew that I was Muslim and would eat only meat that was slaughtered according to the rules of halal. So they made sure that not only was what they gave me halal, but that I would have total confidence in that. What better way than to let me do it myself? One of Nick's biggest strengths was his communication, both its clarity and wisdom. I recall an amusing but very instruct instructive incident, which illustrates and the challenges we faced and how Nick dealt with them. Guyana had recently become independent and was ruled by the People's National Congress, which was socialist-communist. The President of Guyana was the very powerful and iconic Lyndon Forbes Sampson Burnham. Comrade, they used to call him Comrade Burnham. Communism, socialism was the prevalent ideology. We were called Comrade so and so. I was Comrade Beg. Bauxite mining was the major economic activity in Guyana, and just before I landed there in 1979. The government had nationalized the bauxite mining and calcining operation. One usual and tragic result was that people were appointed and promoted more for ideological loyalty than for professional competence. Another result was that the Guyana Mine Workers Union became very strong. Guy Mine. Which used to be called Gaibao had five thousand workers, and all were members of the GMWU. The union president was run. The union was run by its general secretary Stephen Lewis, a huge big man with a voice to match. One effect of the nationalisation and heightened union activity was frequent work stoppages on all kinds of frivolous matters. Then we would have terms of resumption meetings at which a terms of resumption settlement would be arrived at. The meetings were contests of will to see who would break down first. The meetings were very important because if we couldn't arrive at a settlement, the issue would go to arbitration before the Minister of Mines, whose other role was as the President of the Union. The typical terms of resumption meeting would go straight through for anything ranging from twenty-four to seventy-two hours, with short breaks of usually an hour or less. To stretch our legs and eat something, naturally patience was tough to maintain, and tempers would get frayed. This incident, which I am about to narrate, relates to one such meeting. I can't recall. I can't recall what the issue was, for which the union had called for a tools down. We started the meeting at 8 p.m. and it continued through the night into the next morning. We took a break of about two hours to take a shower and have breakfast. Then back in the meeting until 8 p.m. that night. Then a break for dinner and back again through the night. Stephen Lewis was holding forth at full strength, his voice resonating and bouncing off the ceilings and walls. My first experience of surround sound, as I call it. The only op option we had was to listen. 
Our team had Nick as its head and me and another young man from IR, Industrial Relations. In those days, human resource, human resource management had not been invented. So this young guy, we, who we shall call Jacob, which is not his real name, uh, Nick and I, three of us, late that night, well past midnight, Jacob's patience snapped. I can't blame him. It was brutal. Stephen Lewis had been going on and on about the ideological differences between socialist and capitalist ideologies and why the socialist ideology to which the PNC and GMWU were committed was superior. Jacob couldn't take it anymore. He said, man, Stephen, talk sense, man. It was as if he had shot Stephen in the head. Stephen stopped in mid-sentence. He was a huge big man. He turned slowly to face Jacob and said, Bye, Jakey. What you say? Talk sense? Like me not talking sense? You think I be talking nonsense? All this time we been trying to come to a settlement and this boy say we been talking nonsense? Eh? The situation was as close to sitting on a powder keg with a fuse burning as I care to remember. In another two seconds, the union would have walked out and hours and hours of work would have gone down the drain. We would have, we would have to begin again with the additional problem of dealing with bruised egos as a result of good old Jakey's comment. That's when I saw how quick thinking and experience makes a difference. Nick called out, Hold on, hold on, man, Stephen. Divine say, Levy talk sense. He say, let me talk dollar and cents, man. Let me talk money. Let me do that, man. Enough of this ideology thing. Let me decide and go to bed. I swear I saw relief on Stephen Lewis's face. He said, ah, yeah, let me do that. And we did. We finished as the day was breaking, and as we left the room, Stephen came up behind Jacob, affectionately, affectionately grabbed him by the back of his neck, and said, Demand Nick don't save your ass. You know why I say, and I know why I hear. But Nick don't save are we? Both of we. If not, this meeting was gonna go for another two days. Watch your tongue by. It can get you into trouble, huh? And you won't have Nick to bail you out next time. That is where I learned human relations, in a very tough environment, but where even our antagonists took time out to officially mentor youngsters. My last story about Nick. I heard this story from his son, Owen Shaka Abubakar Adams. When Nick was a young man and lived in Linden, Demerara, he received a summons from a court in quarantine which is at the northern border of Guyana with Suriname, a distance of about 400 kilometers. To go there in those days, 1960s, must have been an expedition. Nick had no idea why he had been summoned, but he went. When he arrived at the court, his name was called, and the judge asked him to come forward. As Nick was walking down the aisle, he heard a woman's voice. He is not the man. Nick turned to see a young woman with a baby. 
The judge told the lady, look carefully at him. This is Nick Adams. Is he the man? The lady says, he's not the man, Your Honor. This is somebody else. When Nick asked, the judge said to, said to him, a man by your name got this lady pregnant and now she has a baby. He has disappeared. Anyway, this is not your problem, so you can go home. Nick said to the judge, Your Honor, I would like to request you to please arrange for the maintenance of this child to be deducted from my salary. The judge was astonished. Do you know this lady? Nick said, No, Your Honor, I don't. I am seeing her for the first time today. Then why are you offering to pay for the maintenance of this child? Asked the judge. It's not your responsibility. The matter doesn't concern you. Nick replied, But the child needs to eat, Your Honor. Someone must pay for that. I am willing to do that. So for the next 18 years, Nick Adams paid maintenance for a child that was not his own. He saw the mother that one time in court and never saw the mother or the child again. But month after month, year after year, for 18 years, Nick Adams paid for a child because he had compassion in his heart. His Rabb, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, was no less compassionate. So many decades later, maybe even 60 years later, Nick Adams, who was by then suffering from cancer, one week before his death, accepted Islam along with his wife and sister-in-law. The happiest ending, or I should say the happiest latest story to my Guyana Times was when I got the news in 2011 that Nick Adams and his wife Catherine had accepted Islam. Nick was terminally ill with cancer at the time and he died a week later. I hope one day to meet my friend once again in Jannah. He died sinless and pure and I ask Allah for his mercy and grace for my dear friend to whom I owe so much. And that's why I say to Nick, you were a man.